Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live.
not plans to harm us, but plans to prosper us, give us peace, and an eternal kingdom of glory, of peace, of happiness and joy, a paradise that is waiting for us. We ask you, Lord, to help us to put our minds and our hearts on the future, on the kingdom, on paradise, on our rewards and our time with you, Lord. Thank you, Father. There is a day that is coming when there will no longer be any death or tears or pain or suffering or lies or deceptions or wickedness. But all those things should be put away and perish. But, Lord, we should live with you forevermore in your true love and true love for one another. We will look forward to that day. Help us, Lord, to make it in. Help us, Lord, to get rid of anything we need to get rid of in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that would hinder us from entering paradise. We ask you, Lord, to save us and deliver us from evil. Let us not fall to temptation. Let us not fall to deception. But help us, Lord, to mature to the full statue of Jesus Christ. Ask, Lord, for your special blessing and anointing on today's services, on the message today. Have your words in my mouth, Lord, and increase our understanding of the Holy Scriptures, of your word, and of the future. Help us, Lord, to understand better, Lord, that we not be confused, that we not be in misunderstanding or false doctrines or false teachings. But help us to understand the truth, Father, in your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I believe that we're going to start in Isaiah. If you want to go ahead and turn into the book of Isaiah. And for the, for the record, today's date is September the 24th, 2016 A.D., in the year of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In God's created calendar, it is the 23rd day of the sixth month. 23rd day of the sixth month, which means we're only one week away from the Feast of Trumpets the first day of the seventh month, only a week away. And then, only nine days after that, will be the Day of Atonement. And then, only four or five days after that, is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tabernacles. So the Holy Days are coming up very quick now. It seems unreal to me that these Holy Days are coming up so quick. And so uh, <clears throat> it's something to look forward to. Lots of holidays ahead. And uh, I hope that your holidays in Jesus Christ will be uh, bountiful, a great blessing and edification, a time of joy and celebration for your family, for yourself in the kingdom, for one another. 
and draw them closer to Jesus Christ. And because uh, of the Feast of Trumpets, next weekend we'll be having services two days in a row. Of course, we'll have the normal uh, seventh-day services one week from today, what they call Saturday. And then the very next day, what they call Sunday, uh, October the 2nd, will be the Feast of Trumpets. So we'll have services and have a live broadcast, a sermon, at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, just like we normally do, but for two days in a row, Saturday and Sunday next weekend. And as I've been, I've been talking about uh, the Holy Days, and there's articles on the website as well, that if you've not read these articles about the Feast of Trumpets yet, and Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, I encourage you to go ahead and read them. If you've not read them within the last six months, I encourage you to go back and read them again to help you understand why we keep these days, what they mean, what they teach us, and how to observe them. It's all written on the website. Of course, I've not got everything written there. There's a whole lot to it. There's a lot. I mean, uh, a ton of significance and symbolism in each of these holy days. So it's hard to get it all written there. I continue to try to edit the website and perfect the website, add on to the website on a constant basis but it's hard to get all of the meaning of these holy days written on there, especially since I've got a lot of other projects going on. Maybe one of these days, God willing, maybe God will send some assistance for the website. Uh, it would be wonderful to have a couple of uh, co-writers and co-editors for the website. I'm fantasizing, but... Uh, Maybe the Lord would bless in that way sometime. Uh, and I would love to have a uh, graphic design artist to help with some graphics and signs and pictures and videos and things like that for the website. But even if God does not send any of those people, uh, the main goal and objective is to get people uh, drawn to Jesus Christ, to get people to accept Jesus Christ. The fact is, Jesus is reaching out to everybody. The Bible does say that how you know that no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. Well, guess what? The Father is reaching out to every person. God is not willing for any man to perish. When I say man, I mean mankind. God is not willing for any person, man, woman, or child, to perish. He created all of us. He loves all of us. He wants all of us to accept him. What father does not want his children to accept him? All fathers want their children. Any righteous father, any loving father, wants their children to accept him. God is the father of fathers, the greatest father to ever existed, and the original father. Amen. There was no father before father. 
There was no father before father. He was the first father. Amen. Well, today I'm going to talk about the Old Testament prophecies. How that Old Testament prophecies that's already been fulfilled are going to be fulfilled again. How Old Testament prophecies are dual, D-U-E-L, D-U-E-L, dual. The word dual means uh, twice or more than one meaning. And so the Old Testament prophecies, dual fulfillment, more than one fulfillment. A lot of people, most people, believe that when we read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so forth, that these are just history books, just things that's already been done and fulfilled and therefore have no importance for the end time or for the future. The majority of so-called Christians believe that, that it's just history, no importance for the end times. Now, there's a lot that believe or understand that there's some prophecies for the end time in Daniel and Isaiah and so forth, but they still don't understand that not only are the prophecies that are very clear, very clearly written for the end time, for the end time, but not only that, that even those things that directly talked about the invasion of Judah and Israel, Jerusalem, by the Assyrians and Babylonians thousands of years ago, that were fulfilled, they don't understand that those things are dual prophecies that will be fulfilled again. So a lot of times when I proclaim what's going to happen about specifics of World War III and the Great Tribulation, I proclaim a lot of things that was written by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And people, people want specifics. And a lot of people ask me very, very, very specific questions. What will it be like? Will it be this? Will it be that? Will this happen? Will that happen? And I give very specific answers a lot of times. And then people ask, how do you know this? And a lot of it comes from reading what was already fulfilled. And so when I give them those scriptures, they're like, yeah, but this has already been fulfilled. And they don't understand that it's a dual prophecy. So let's examine this a little bit to help more people understand this more fully, more completely, of how we can use the Old Testament prophecies to point toward the future. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, It says, and it came about in the days of Ahaz, that's very specific about what time period it was in history during that man's lifetime, 
in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzzah, Uzziah, king of Judah. So he was a king of the southern tribes of Judah, the tribe of Judah, Benjamin and Levi. Um, at the time, at the time, Israel, the 12 tribes, were divided into two different sections. And you had your northern 10 tribes in the northern part of Israel. And you had your uh, tribe of Judah and I believe maybe Simon or Benjamin were in with the tribe of Judah in the southern part of Israel, and they were separated. And they were all descendants of Israel. They were all descendants of Jacob. They were all brothers, but there were thousands, perhaps millions, of these people by this time, uh, all related kin to one another, sharing the same great-grandfathers of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by, by this time, though, there was division between the brothers. There was division between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And at many times, they were actually fighting one another, killing one another, going to war with one, one another, even though they were... Um, uh, descendants of the same grandfather. So this is the same as like the North versus the South. It's kind of like a civil war. Just like in the United States, you had the Northern states and the Southern states at war with one another. But all of the same descendants, same bloodline, so forth. This is what was happening. It was like an American civil war. The Northern tribes against the Southern tribes, states. So now this king of Judah was the king of the southern tribes. That Rehaz, or Rezin, the king of Aram, or Syria, or the Assyrians, and Pekah, the son of Ramaniah, king of Israel, the northern tribes, went up to Jerusalem, the south, to wage war against it. So the northern tribes were in alliance with Assyria. Just like right now, Obama secretly is in alliance with Syria while outwardly waging war against him. So it's a conflict of interest and it's hypocrisy. And that's what was going on there too. So again, this is a repeat of history. History repeats itself. And even though it's talking about a very specific time frame in history, actually giving you the names of all the different kings and who was on whose side, and all, even though it's kind of confusing, I mean kind of confusing, especially when you're just taking one verse and you're not reading the whole book, it's got kind of confusing. But nevertheless, it's very specific, and yet it was a foreshadowing of the American Civil War and a foreshadowing of what's going on right now. How Obama is aligning himself with Iran, with the Muslim, with the Saudi Arabia, with the Muslim countries, and how there's a, a um, sort of a, a political war between the North and the South, again right now, with the racial problems 
and federal over taxation and uh, federal uh, budgeting in to state laws and trying to control the states and the states trying to maintain their independence from the federal government. And so it's, we're undergoing right now all the same conditions that existed in the Civil War. Then verse 2, when it was reported to the house of David, uh, and David had been long dead, but it's, it's speaking about his descendants, saying the Arabians, which mean the Syrians, the King James, I believe, says the Syrians here. Uh, but even that may be, uh, I'm not for sure if, a, if that even would be a correct translation. It might be the Assyrians. I, I'm not for sure whether it was the Syrians or the Assyrians because there's a difference. There is a difference between Syrians and Assyrians, or there was at one time. There is not now. But originally, uh, Assyria invaded Syria. So they were originally two groups. But... Uh, because of that invasion and conquest and intermarrying and, and um, so forth, now they're pretty much one and the same people. So when we look at Syria today, it is Assyria. Uh, they are under Assyrian control and Assyrian captivity, so they're still Assyria to, to this day. But at one time, originally, the Syrians were not under the Assyrian influence and Assyrian captivity. So whether Syrians or, or Assyrians here, it's basically uh, about the same thing, or at least it is now. And so when we're, if we're thinking about our day and our time or the future, we could put the word Assyrians here if we're t thinking about the fulfillment in our time. And so they camped in Ephraim. Ephraim was the northern tribes. And they represent England. Just like England is a very, very, very north islands up there around Scotland and Ireland. They are a very northern nation on the globe of the world. And so the Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes, but they were the leader tribe. And because they were the leader tribe of the Northern Ten, they represent uh, all of the ten. They are the capital. And they are actually representing uh, the British Commonwealth. Just like that Northern capital of London uh, is still in control through the Queen of England uh, over Australia thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, the Queen of England still has some political control over South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, even Canada is still under the London royal ship Queen of England. And so Ephraim represents England and the British Commonwealth and the Northern Ten Tribes. And his heart, this, these people camped against Ephraim, and his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord, or Jesus, 
said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashful, at the end of the conduct of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezan and Syria, or Assyria, and the sons of Remaliah. Because Aram, Syria, or Assyria, with England, Ephraim, and the sons of Remaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against the southern tribes, Judah, the Jews, and terrorize it. Interesting that it has that word terrorize because Judah is constantly, every day, not like America uh, once a week or once every two or three weeks, but in, in Judah, in Israel, it is constantly being terrorized terror attacks, stabbings, and everything over there on a daily basis. So they've come up against Judah to terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus saith the Lord G, it shall not stand or come to pass uh, for the head of Syria is the masses, and the head of the masses is reason. Now, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it would no longer be a people. In other words, that Ephraim, the northern tribes, would be invaded by Assyria. And in that case, I know for sure it was Assyria. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. Samaria was a city. Ephraim was the nation. Ephraim was the larger tribe, like England, but Samaria was like London. Samaria was a city. I don't know if it was London or what city it was. I'm not saying, no, it wasn't. It wasn't London because we're talking about Middle East. But they became, the descendants became London and England and all the British Commonwealth. But at that time, it was just cities and tribes and nations in the Middle East. So uh, it says the head or the capital city. That word head there is referring to a capital city. That's why in Revelation 13, verse 3, where it says that the beast, the Antichrist, that one of his heads were wounded to death, the daily head wound. But if you look at that Greek word in Revelation 13, verse 3, for head, it is the same Greek word for capital, the same Greek word for capital city. And so I believe if you were to look at Isaiah in the Greek Citrudian, the same would be true here in this verse. That is the Greek word for capital city. And so the capital city is Samaria. Uh, is the son of Rehemiah. If you would not believe, you should surely not last. In other words, uh, you must believe what God has given 
And if you believe what God has spoken, God will bless you. And if you do not believe what God has spoken, you will be accursed. So it says if you believe what God has spoken, if you don't believe what God has spoken, you will not lapse, not survive, and not endure. So we're in Isaiah 7, verse 9. Now, uh, so right there we see a prophecy that before it happened, God told the people through Isaiah and through these kings, God told the people that Assyria was going to invade the northern ten tribes. Guess what? It happened. It happened. And we have archaeological evidence, proof, that it happened. We have uh, drawings in stone to this day. There are drawings in stone from that time period that shows Assyrian soldiers uh, with Jewish uh, and Israelite uh, people under captivity. Uh, So we know it happened. We have the proof of that. And yet it was foretold in the scriptures, even written down on paper, that it was going to happen. Now that is a prophecy that's already been fulfilled. But yet, we know it will be fulfilled again because there are other scriptures that make it very clear that there will be an end time invasion, especially when you get into chapter 10 and so forth. It becomes very clear that there will be an end time Assyrian, very specific, that it will be an end time Assyrian invasion of Israel again in the end times, during the time that Jesus comes back, that the people will still be under the Assyrian invasion when Jesus comes back. So we can tell that this chapter 7 is a dual prophecy, that it is fulfilled more than one time. Now let's keep reading here in verse 10. Isaiah 7, verse 10 Then Jesus spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from G, your God, your Theos. So God is telling uh, Ahaz, uh, pick and choose what sign you want. Well, that was very gracious of the Lord to do that. Very, very gracious. God knew that Ahaz may need some assistance in believing and gave him the choice of what sign he would want to prove that it was going to happen. Ask a sign for yourself from Jesus, your God, and make it deep as the grave, it should say, or as high as heaven, as deep as the grave or as high as heaven, meaning anything, any sign you want in heaven or on earth. He could ask for lightning and thunder. Wow, 
he could ask for lightning thunder and God would have gave it to him. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test G. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it a slight thing for you or a little thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So the man refused to ask for a sign, even though God said he would have given him one. And God said, well, I will choose them. God chose the sign that would be given to prove that the Assyrian invasion would come. And so the Lord chose the sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now we know that was fulfilled with Jesus. But now Jesus was not born for thousands of years, or many hundreds of years, I don't know, a long, long time, many hundreds of years, or maybe a thousand or more years after this. But yet this was supposed to be a sign for the Assyrian invasion that would occur in that man's lifetime. And guess what? There was a man born of a virgin named Emmanuel in that day and time. Have you ever heard that before? It's in the Bible. It happened. In that day and time. And it says in verse 15, he would eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, meaning while he was uh, still young but old enough to start making decisions, no from right from wrong, no longer a toddler. Verse 16, for behold, for before the boy, actually before, before he would know long enough, so maybe while he's still a baby, while he's still a toddler. Uh, so verse 15, maybe should be translated before, because verse 16 says before. Before. So verse 16 says, for before the boy would know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you tread will be forsaken. Then G will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So it's saying the king of Assyria would come upon the northern ten tribes. While this boy was extremely young, before he would know the difference between right and wrong. So that's very clear that that was to be fulfilled at that time. And so the first fulfillment was way before the time of the birth of Jesus. But yet it was fulfilled again with the birth of Jesus. So why was it fulfilled again? It was fulfilled again to tell us there's another Assyrian invasion. Amen. Now, there was not another Assyrian invasion uh, 
uh, at any other time after the birth of Jesus except for 70 A.D. A lot of people don't understand that the invasion of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was an Assyrian invasion. So the birth of Jesus was a sign that Jerusalem would be invaded again from the north, from Syria, through the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire had different states, different provinces. And one province was the Syrian province, and it was the Syrian province and the Syrian soldiers that invaded Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and committed the abomination of desolation in 70 A.D. But yet it is also going to be fulfilled a third time. Not just two times, but a third time. Because the birth of Jesus is not just a sign for 70 A.D., but a sign for the end times as well. So some of these prophecies can be fulfilled three times. In fact, there is a scripture that says that the judgment will be doubled the third time. The judgment will be doubled the third time. I believe that's in Jeremiah. Um, Let's look at chapter 8, Isaiah 8. Now, before we read chapter 8, let me explain about that word Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, just like Jesus means God with us. But Emmanuel is a title, whereas God, I mean, whereas Jesus is a name. Jesus is how you pronounce a name that means God with us. And Emmanuel is how you pronounce a title that means God with us. Then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke to me, saying, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Meaning, uh, with uh, man's writing would be a better translation of that with man's writing. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. That's what God told him to write down. God (laughs) is great. Swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeroboam. So I approach the prophecies. This is Isaiah said that he went into the uh, bridal chamber with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. This is the fulfillment, the first fulfillment, of the boy that would be called Emmanuel. 
And it was Isaiah's son. And it says, Jesus said to me, name him Mahar Shalah Bash Hash Bash. However, it's pronounced. So just like in the New Testament, it, in one place it says call him Emmanuel, and in another place it said call him Jesus, the same thing appears in Isaiah that it gives him two different names or two different titles or a name and a title. And one of them is the same, Emmanuel, and then the other one says this name. So that is another way of foreshadowing that in the New Testament fulfillment, there would be two different ways of, or titles, or names. And it says here that it means, uh, let's see, It means swift is the booty. And by booty, the word booty means like uh, sieging or gaining control of uh, the property of the enemy. Gaining control, sieging control of the enemy. Booty is the uh, rewards of war, the, the things that you take over, the houses, the cars, the land. The property, that's what booty is. It's the things that you receive in war. Uh, so swift is a, is, is a swift invasion, and they take over the property and the belongings of the people. So that is what that name meant. And it says, verse 4, For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, before he knows the difference between right and wrong, and before he can say, Dad and mom, while he's still a toddler, that the wealth of Damascus uh, and the spoil of Samaria, the northern capital, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, the invasion of Syria by the Assyrians and the invasion of the United States in our time by the Assyrians, the invasion of England. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States by the Assyrians in our time. Verse 5, Jesus spoke to me, Father, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, which represents the Holy Ghost, and rejoice in Rinzim and the son of Remaliah. In other words, they rejoice in Assyria. A lot of conservatives are supporting Assad, saying Assad is a victim, saying that we should support Assad and defend Assad. That's what a lot of people, so-called Christians, so-called conservatives on Facebook, is saying that Assad is a good guy, that Assad is protecting the Christians, is the claim, which is a lie. And so they reject Jesus Christ and the truth and they embrace the enemy, just like Obama is embracing, embracing Iran and Saudi Arabia. So Obama is trying to play both the Sunnis and the Shiites, trying to play both sides of anybody that is Islam, 
while rejecting God and rejecting the tribes of his own nation or what he's supposed to be in control of. Verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Aprites, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up, him, the king of Assyria, will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. This is foreshadowing. This is symbolism. This is not talking about a literal flood of water. It's symbolism for armies overflowing nations. Verse 8, these armies will sweep on the Jews, and it will overflow and pass through other nations, and it will reach even to the neck. And the spread of his wings, because the bird was the main symbol of the Assyrian Empire, and the spread of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So here it goes back to that name, Emmanuel. Uh, It's very easy to discern that this is talking about not only thousands of years ago, even before Christ, before his birth, about the invasion of Assyria of the Ten Tribes. There's no doubt to that. But it's also easy through the Holy Spirit, to also discern and understand that it's an end-time dual prophecy that will be fulfilled in our time, because if you look at about the abomination of desolation, it uses some of the same language about um, the wings. That word wings there in verse 8 is uh, related to Daniel 9. Verse 27. Let me take a peek at that. Uh, Daniel 9, verse 27. Which, Daniel 9, 27 is a very hard scripture to understand. But Daniel 9, 27, if you want to look at that for a minute, is a verse that is used by most people to refer to the end time great tribulation. And I don't know if it really does, to be honest with you. But it is used by most people to refer to the end time tribulation. Daniel 9, 27 says, and he will make a covenant, a firm covenant. It doesn't say peace treaty. It just says covenant. With the meaning for one week, it doesn't say seven years. It just says one week. But in the middle of the week, does not say in the middle of seven years, but in the middle of a week. He will make a stock to sacrifice and grain offering, which some of those words may have been inserted, and on the wing, wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even unto a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So whether that is something that refers to the end time or something that's already been fulfilled, which I believe has already been fulfilled, it could still have at least some, some symbolism of an end time um, abomination of desolation. It may not be fulfilled completely. We don't need 
uh, a covenant of a week or seven years. We don't have to have that part fulfilled. Just like we don't have to have another man named Emmanuel or another man named Jesus or another man named Mawala, whatever it was, you know. We don't have to have another man born of a virgin again for it to be fulfilled another Assyrian invasion. Uh, and so you can have a partial fulfillment. Uh, just like uh, uh, we don't have to have another president called King Ahaz. You know, so you can have a partial fulfillment as well. Let's look at, I think, Isaiah 9. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, this is only a few verses after talking about the birth of Isaiah's son, who was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And it says in chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Now that's very clearly talking about Jesus. Yet the fulfillment of government being on his shoulder and no end to his government is going to be ultimately fulfilled when he comes and it's not fulfilled to completeness yet. Amen. Even though he was born over 2,000 years ago. So sometimes you can have fulfillment that is in stages where it starts to come to pass but lingers and is not in complete fulfillment. It holds back. It starts to be fulfilled, but it lingers. You have the first stage, the second stage, the third stage of fulfillment and being the ultimate end time fulfillment. So a lot of people don't understand that when a prophecy is proclaimed, even if there's a certain date attached to it or a very specific uh, event to occur, a lot of people think, well, you've got to see 100% of everything related to that prophecy fulfilled all in one second. And yet Jesus was born and he did not reign as king on this earth during his lifetime. So prophecies don't have to be fulfilled 100% altogether in one second. It can take a process of thousands of years for the entire prophecy to unfold. Amen. As the scriptures tell us that uh, one day is a thousand years. Or a thousand years is as one day with the Lord. 
So even though it may seem like 2,000 years to us, with him, it's just a day. So God sees the bigger picture, and he's not limited by time, whereas we try to fit everything into a box and try to make everything occur all at one time. Amen. And look at chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12 says, So it will be that when the Lord has completed, brought to the full completion, all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness, So that was talking about, in the first fulfillment, that after Assyria invaded the northern ten tribes, that God would eventually punish the king of Assyria. That was already fulfilled thousands of years ago. But yet it is also a fulfillment of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Because guess what? Has God completed What's going on? No, he's not completed. What's going on? And so this is a future prophecy. And it says, because, verse 13, that the Assyrian has said, by the power of my hand, by the power of my hand, a very arrogant mind frame of the Antichrist, the power of my hand, and by my wisdom, I did this, invaded Jerusalem. For I have understanding, and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples, meaning he has uh, uh, made a confederation. He's took Judah and all the different ten tribes and made it one nation under his kingdom. So we're going to have a one-world empire, a one-world government, and he's going to remove the uh, borders of North America and England and Judah and Jerusalem and Jerusalem and uh, Israel, because uh, he will have uh, new borders of ten regions of the whole world and uh, do away with the current uh, map of the world. So he says, I removed the boundaries of the people and I plundered their treasures, meaning take the booty. That's what that means, to plunder the treasures, is take the booty. And remember, booty means those things tuck and control of in war, the property, the land, the houses, the cars. So he plundered the treasures, and like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand. Remember, it's going I, 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 my, my, my. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest, using the bird analogy. And as one gathers a bandit eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing or whooped in its beak or chirped. So, I mean, that's very clear. That even though it was talking about the king of Assyria a thousand years ago, it still has language 
that is very reminiscent of the end time son of perdition, how he's very arrogant and boastful. Uh, so that is a clue, a clue of a future fulfillment. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord G of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So here it says that even though the Assyrian is trying to take credit, it's really God that is in control. It's Jesus who is in control and is bringing all this to pass. Verse 24, Therefore thus saith G, the Lord G of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with a rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, not in addition, against you, anger against you, will be spent, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. So he's going to turn the punishment eventually away from America and toward Syria and Iran and Russia and China. The war is going to turn around in the last few months or weeks and days of the tribulation. The war will be turned around toward our favor, and the judgment will come upon the Assyrian, Russia and China and Iran. Verse 6, the Jehovah's will arouse a scourge, meaning a whip, against him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift up the way he did in Egypt. So uh, this is talking about end-time fulfillment. Uh, verse 27, and it will be in that day that his burden will be removed. The Assyrian invasion will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of his fatness. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. This is talking about Jesus. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of G will rest on him. That's talking about his baptism, how the Holy Spirit rested, descended upon him. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, but he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So this goes from the birth of Jesus all through his teenage years and adulthood about how he makes decisions by the spirit rather than by the carnal eye, not by carnal decisions or carnal thinking, but by the Holy Spirit that he makes decisions and judgments all the way up to what's going to happen when he comes to strike the Assyrian. How will he strike the Assyrian? By the breath of his lips. So if you want to put a bookmark there and look at chapter 30, verse 31. Chapter 30, verse 31. 
Look at verse 30, chapter 30, verse 30. And G recalls his voice of authority to be heard. And the descending of his arm or his armies to be seen in fierce anger or wrath and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudbursts and the downpour of hailstones. It's talking about the coming of the Lord. For at the voice of Jesus, the Assyrian will be terrified when he strikes with the rod. This is Jesus Christ coming down to destroy the Assyrian, Bashar Assad, with what? With the voice of Jesus, the voice of Jesus. Going back to chapter 11, verse 4, that he would strike the earth, Jesus whipped with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. But the Greek Saturian says he will slay the wicked one being more specific about who's being slain. It's not just wicked people, but specifically the Assyrian, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the wicked one. And then if you want to keep your finger there or bookmark there and turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, we see that Paul quotes this verse. We've looked at this before more than once, but let's look at it again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Then the lawless one, or wicked one, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Paul is quoting Isaiah about Jesus destroying the Assyrian king when Jesus comes. So how can we deny that Old Testament prophecies that's already been fulfilled are going to be fulfilled again. How can we deny that? Now, of course, Jesus did not come and destroy the first king of Assyria by the brightness of his coming or the sword of his mouth in one sense. But in another sense, Jesus did do that by bringing about the eventual downfall of the king of Assyria thousands of years ago. Jesus didn't do it by appearing in the sky, but still yet, Jesus spoke forth the judgment upon that king. And in that way, and in that sense, that king of Assyria was eventually defeated. I believe, by the Babylonians, by the next kingdom. So, again, you don't have to have prophecy fulfilled exactly the way you think it's going to be fulfilled. And it'll still be a true prophecy. Because the prophecy for Isaiah's time frame 
was that the Lord would slay the king of Assyria by the breath of his mouth. The people that was alive when it happened may have said, yeah, the king of Assyria has died. Yeah, the king of Assyria has been invaded and assassinated by the new kingdom. But the Lord didn't slay him with his mouth. But the Lord did slay him with his mouth, but not in the way that some people may have envisioned it. So we need to be careful about saying that prophecies are not fulfilled in the way that we think that they're supposed to be fulfilled. And again, fulfillment can occur in stages and in different ways from what we think. But neither should we refrain from declaring very clearly obvious false prophecies and false prophets. We shouldn't hold back from, I mean, such ridiculous false prophecies that we're hearing out there right now about where they're saying Trump will be president and Trump will revive America and save America, that Trump will bring a revival of Christians uh, across America, and there'll be a great revival all across America, and America will turn back to God and all that. Those prophecies out there are totally hogwash, meaning ridiculous and totally false. So there are times that we must call it the way it is and speak against false prophecy. But there is also times that we need to understand that true prophecy may come about and be fulfilled in a different manner than way than what we're interpreting it be to be and still be a true prophecy. And so it helps to understand how prophecy is fulfilled. It's, it's fulfilled in stages, it's fulfilled over thousands of years, it's fulfilled in God's way, in God's timing, and so forth. Now look at, let's see, chapter 13, Isaiah 13. Verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare heel, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones, my holy ones. I have been even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains that like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Jehovah's is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farest horizons, and G and his instruments of inundation to destroy the whole land. Well, for the day of G is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. That word, day of the Lord or the day of G, or the day of Jesus' return. 
that's very clear wording that refers to the end time. Yet this was also talking about the defeat of the king of Assyria by the Babylonians. So it's dual prophecy. We know it will be fulfilled again because it says the day of the Lord. And that is end time terminology that almost anybody would agree that day of the Lord is an end time terminology. Yet it's talking about something already been fulfilled. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. 14, verse 12. Talking about Lucifer, the devil, when Lucifer fell from heaven the first time, the first rebellion against God. And it says, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have evil, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. So Lucifer tried to overthrow God, even before Adam and Eve existed, because the serpent was present in the Garden of Eden. So the fall of Lucifer had already occurred before Adam and Eve was created and before the Garden of Eden. So Lucifer tried to overthrow the throne of God. It says, I will sit, in verse 13, I will sit in the mount of the assembly. Verse 14, I will ascend into the height of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. So, the devil wanted to sit in the seat of God. Look at verse 13 where it says, I will ascend to heaven and raise my throne above the stars of God. That means above the angels of God. And we know, uh, keep a bookmark there and look at Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12. Talking about our day and time, just in the future, a few months, weeks, or months in the future here. Verse 7, there were going to be a war. There was a war in heaven. A war in heaven. Ain't that what Isaiah is talking about? And Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. But the dragon is Satan. And the dragon and his angels waged war. There's a war in heaven. Why is the devil going to be waging war in heaven? Are they going to be out there fighting over 50 cents? Are they, are they going to be fighting over a toy? Are they going to be fighting over a dog, over a cat, a car? Are they going to be fighting over one acre of heaven? No, they're going to be fighting over the throne, over leadership, to... The devil and his angels are going to try to be overthrowing God, which is impossible, which shows how arrogant they are. They have a very arrogant heart, like Lucifer did. 
so does all the fallen angels have arrogant hearts thinking that they could overthrow God, fool themselves. It's foolishness and wickedness. And so we see that that's going to occur again. It's going to be a dual prophecy. In the context of verse 7 through the rest of chapter 12, Revelation 12, it's very clear that it's talking about the end time. We're going to come back here in a few minutes and read all chapter 12. So if you want to put a bookmark there, we'll come back later and read that whole chapter. Going back to Isaiah. we see that that is going to be a dual prophecy. But let's actually leave Isaiah and let's turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel is uh, a few books over to the right of Isaiah. Ezekiel 28. Verse 1. Ezekiel 28, verse 1, talking about the same event. The word of G came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, and the Tyre was a city in what is now Lebanon. Say to the leader, of Tyre, thus saith G God, or the Lord G, because your heart is lifted up, arrogance, and you said, I am God, or I am a God. I will sit in the seat of God. I will sit in the throne of God. Now, that was a human leader on the earth. But yet, it was talking about a fallen angel, Lucifer, or a different fallen angel. So how can we say it won't be fulfilled again? How can we say it won't be fulfilled again? What are they going to be fighting over in heaven in Revelation 12? And this shows that human leaders on the earth can be fallen angels. Are you really going to have a flesh and blood human being who is not a fallen angel going to sit in heaven? That's impossible. It's impossible for a human being to ascend up into heaven. This was more than arrogance. This was a being that was capable of ascending into heaven. In fact, the earlier verse we read in Isaiah said, I will ascend into heaven. That's more than just a rocket. That's a fallen angel. Okay, so let's read Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, over there 
just a few pages to your left, Jeremiah chapter 3. Verse 6, Jeremiah 3, verse 6, Then G said to me in the days of uh, Joshua the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did, the northern ten tribes? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, meaning these pagan places, places of pagan worship. That would be equivalent today to going to a Sunday church because it is pagan worship. They're keeping Assyrian Christmas, Assyrian Easter, Halloween. Sunday is an Assyrian holiday. So, I mean, it's no difference. If we go to a Sunday church, we might as well go to every high hill and every green tree where these pagans were worshiping because there is no difference. There's no difference. We have to stop thinking that they're going there to serve the Lord. They're not. You can't serve the Lord in deception. You can't serve the Lord in Christmas. You can't serve the Lord in Easter. You can't serve the Lord in Halloween. You can't serve the Lord in lies and fairy tales and deceptions and antichrist doctrines. We have to stop making excuses and stop saying, well, these people are good people and they mean well and their hearts are sincere. Because if their hearts really were sincere, they would seek the truth and find the truth and accept the truth and God would deliver them if they wanted deliverance. If they wanted deliverance, God would deliver them. And it says here at verse 7, I thought after she had done all these things that she would return to me, but she did not return. They she did not repent. The Assyrian, I mean the northern tribes speaking in a foreshadowing manner about the United States, that the United States is not going to repent. But she did not return or repent. Her treacherous sister, the Jews, saw it. And I saw, verse 8, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writing of divorce. God was married to the northern ten tribes. The Old Testament people of Israel was a foreshadowing of the New Testament church. And just like the New Testament, New Covenant church, I should say, the New Covenant church is the bride of Christ. Are we the bride of Christ? Yes, we are. So if we're the bride of Christ, then is this not Christ? Existing in the book of Jeremiah. Amen. This is Christ. Existing in the book of Jeremiah. In Old Testament time. Thousands of years before Jesus was born. 
But at that time, he was married to the physical tribes of Israel and divorced. God got a divorce because according to the scriptures that people can divorce if it is for the reason of fornication because God doesn't want a husband or a bride, a woman, a man or a woman, to stay with one another if they're cheating on one another. If one of them is cheating, you're under no requirement or no law to stay with that person. Because it would be unjust to stay with that person. It wouldn't be right to stay with that person. And so God is the same that he had a right to divorce the northern ten tribes because the northern ten tribes was committing fornication, adultery with false gods, with demons, with the Assyrian worship and compromising with pagan nations and embracing their gods. That's what America is doing now with Iran and Saudi Arabia and Syria, embracing false gods. So if America is repeating the same sins with the same other woman, with the other, with the same false gods, the same demons that the northern ten tribes were committing adultery with. Will not the punishment come again? Of course it will. And it says here in verse 8 that he gave her a right in the divorce, yet her treacherous sister, the Judah's sister, Judah, the Jews, did not fear that she went and also became a harlot also. But you would think that if one child sees the other child being disciplined, that the other child would not commit the same sin. But she did. Therefore, it's worse. Because, I mean, she had the benefit of seeing that it was wrong and that she would be punished if she did the same thing. And she still did the same thing. So that makes it even more wrong. Verse 9, because of the likeness of her idolatry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. With stones. That's the way the Catholic Church does, the worship of statues. That's the way Islam does with the worship of statues and the worship of, uh, of the black stone of Mecca. And it says committed adultery with trees. Every time that anybody puts up a Christmas tree or any kind of Christmas decoration, they are committing adultery with trees. Anytime anybody has any type of statue, it is adultery against God. So how can we continue to make excuses for these people? Verse 10, yet in spite of all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all of her heart, but rather in deception. In deception. And that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for these people 
to be in deception. Look at Jeremiah 7, verse 16. So by this time, the Assyrian invasion has already occurred of the northern ten tribes. And now, God is telling Jeremiah to warn the southern tribes that they, too, are going to be punished for the same sins. And this time, it's going to be by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be sent in against the tribe of Judah, the southern tribes. And so chapter 7, verse 16, as for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. I will not listen to your pleas of please forgive them or don't judge them or don't invade them. But yet people today say that, uh, that that would be wrong. If you tell anybody that that you're going to pray that the invasion will come, they'll think you're crazy and that you don't have any love, but you're wicked. That's what people think, because they don't know God, and they don't understand God, and they don't know the Bible, and they've never even read this verse. But yet there is verse after verse after verse that says don't pray for these people. This ain't the only one. This ain't the only verse that says this. But God told Jeremiah over and over and over, don't pray for these people. And yet people will point to the verses where Jeremiah did pray for the people. But when he did so, even though it was out of love and out of cure and out of concern, it was in disobedience. Because God had to keep telling them, stop praying for these people. They don't deserve it. They're going to get punished. They have to be punished. They deserve punishment. And only by bringing the punishment are they going to repent. Only by bringing the punishment will they repent. It's for their own good. God is not a mean God. He's not mean. He doesn't want to punish the people. But only by bringing the punishment will the people start behaving themselves. That's a good father. That's a good parent that would punish the children. for doing wrong. And so it says here in verse 17, do you not see, Jeremiah, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem? Verse 18, the children gathering wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven and they pour out a drink offering to other gods in order to spite me. This is what they're doing on Christmas. They are leaving milk and cookies for Santa Claus. They are pouring out a drink offering and breaking, kneading dough or making cookies for the Assyrian god called Santa Claus. 
This is an abomination unto the Lord. And what they were doing thousands of years ago, they still have not repented. Or they did repent for only a little while. And then they went right back to their wicked ways again. When will the people learn? When will the people learn? They have to be spanked again. They have to be spanked again. Amen? They have to be. And when you see these parents in the grocery stores, just, or at the park or wherever, just hollering and screaming at the children, but never, ever, ever spanking. Well, then they wonder why their children are so mean and out of control and rebellious because they're not getting enough discipline. I'm very much against child abuse, but spanking your child is not abuse. It's discipline, and it's biblical discipline. And look at chapter 10. Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Hear the word which G speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus say of G, do not learn the way of the nations. It should say Gentile nations or the heathen. I think King James says heathen. Don't learn or don't follow after their own ways. But that's exactly what Israel did and the Jews did. That's exactly what America has done and is doing. It's learning how to worship false gods. That's what the people that keep Christmas and Easter and Halloween, they look at what others are doing and monkey see, monkey does, monkey do. They have to act like everybody else, dress like everybody else, do the way you know, do the same holidays that the other people do. They want to be like them, and they learn their false ways and their evil ways. God says, "Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't learn their ways and follow their false customs." It says, "Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, uh, although the heavens are ter- nations are terrified by them, for the." Customs of the people are delusion. What this means is the people were worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, and they were being terrified by eclipses and comets, and they were being terrified by constellations, and they uh, were being terrified by the rising of the sun and and, uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and all the different elements of the earth, of creation. And so they thought the sun was a god. And they thought the moon was a god. They thought the comets were gods. They thought the stars were gods and everything. And so they worshipped these things. 
And they worshipped the trees and the stones. And this is the same way the Native Americans did, worshipping the eagle and the lion, as the way the Egyptians did, worshipping these things and the animals. And that's the way the, the people under witchcraft still do, and the atheists and the witches of today, worshipping the earth and the far and the wind and the water and all that. That's the way horoscopes is all about. Horoscopes is all about the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. Christians have no business reading their horoscope. Stay away from it. It is witchcraft. It is worship of the creation over and above God. We should seek God for what's going to happen today, what we need to do today, what we need to stay away from today. Seek God about it rather than the stars, rather than the horoscopes. To seek the stars and the horoscopes about what you need to do today or not do today is to seek creation and worship the creation over God. And this is what the people are doing with the Christmas tree as well. Verse 3, for the customs of the people are delusion or deception because it is a wood or tree cut from the woods, from the forest. The work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool or a chainsaw or an axe. They decorate it with silver and with gold and they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not fall down or totter. Now, what it looks like at that time may not have looked anything like a Christmas tree, but it was the original Christmas tree. That's exactly what it was. It may have, they may have drawn or carved eyes on it. They may have gave it a nose and a mouth. It may have looked more like a, a totem pole, totem pole. It may have been a completely different from the way it looks today. But make no mistake about it. It was the first Christmas tree. To believe that it wasn't is ignorant. And foolishness. It was the origins of our modern day Christmas tree. So don't let these people deceive you and fool you by these people that say, well, it wasn't a Christmas tree. All it was was a, a tatum pole. All it was was a, a statue uh, of that. It was a graven image of the time or however they want to word it. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it was shaped like. I don't care what the size of it was. It was wood. That's very clear. They decorated it. That's very clear. It was part of worship. That's very clear. So what's different? What's different? I don't care if they decorate it green or red or purple. It's still decorating it. It's still a tree. It is still a worship of deception. It is still a worship of a tree. It's still a Christmas tree. Amen. Can there be any excuses? No. No excuses. For at one time, God did wink or cover his eyes at the uh, ignorance of the people, but no longer. Now he says that people everywhere must repent. That's what the Bible says. I believe that might be an act. 
But that's what the Bible says. There's no longer any excuse for ignorance. Now, people back then are doing the same thing they do today. So, will the same judgment will come? Absolutely. The same judgment will come. Jeremiah 17. Verse 21, Jeremiah 17, verse 21. 17, verse 21. Thus say of G, take heed for yourselves. And do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything into the gates of Jerusalem. Now, originally, it did not have that word Sabbath because that was not a Hebrew word. But after the invasions of Assyria and Babylon, they started speaking the Assyrian language. And the word Sabbath was an Assyrian word. And all the scriptures were translated into the Assyrian language. And the Jews learned that language. So when the Bible was retranslated over into Greek, even though they translated it into Greek, they still held on to some of the Assyrian words, even to this very day. So it's not a sin to say an Assyrian word. And it's not a sin to say Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or January or February or any of the days of the month or week or the word Sabbath. These are just words. That's all they are. They're pagan words which have pagan evil origins. The word Sabbath has an evil origin. The word Sunday and Monday and Tuesday has an evil origin. The word January, February, March, April, May, they have an evil origin. But they're just words. They're just vocabulary of the day. And so, but it's still important to understand where the words came from. But when we deal with words like Yahshua and Yahweh, it's more than just words. These are words of evil origin that's being applied for the name of God in substitution of his holy name. And that's not acceptable. And that is wicked. And that is a sin. That is a sin. And so we must not only stop using those names of Yahshua and Yahweh and Jehovah, but we must also repent and say to Jesus, I'm sorry. I repent. I was wrong in using these names, and I will not use these names anymore. Repentance must be a full repentance, not just halfway, halfway. Repentance means saying, I'm sorry, and then stop doing that sin. And Stop doing wrong and start doing right. So just wanted to explain that a little bit. But it says here in Jeremiah that on the seventh day, or what was eventually called the Sabbath, that we should not carry a heavy load. 
it says load, but that's not, it doesn't mean you can't curry your pocketbook. It doesn't mean you can't curry your shoes. It's talking about a heavy load on the seventh day or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem. What it means through the gates of Jerusalem is mean don't come in there setting up for the flea market. Don't come in there selling your stuff because the custom was that people would come through the gates with the things that they were selling, and that's what it was talking about. Um, verse 22, you should not bring a load out of your houses. Uh, a load is not your shoes. A load is a big load. Uh, out of your houses on the Sabbath, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Well, if God is telling the people in Jeremiah's day, to do this, then it's still for us today as well. Um, this is in contrast to keeping Christmas and Easter. Whereas the people who are doing evil, the people who are deceived, have their fake holidays, and God's people have their true holidays. just as it was to our forefathers. Verse 23, yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but they stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. Isn't that what people are doing today? They don't want to hear that you must keep the Sabbath, that you must keep the Sabbath day. They don't want to hear that. They will harden their heart, they will stiffen their neck, and they will refuse absolutely refuse to hear this. But yet they're more than willing to worship the devil by keeping Christmas and Easter and Halloween. Do the people deserve judgment? Yes. The people deserve a spanking. A major spanking. They've got it coming to them. They deserve it. We should not be praying that they won't be punished. Because to pray that they won't be punished is a wicked prayer. That is a wicked prayer. To pray that wicked people won't be punished. Is that a wicked prayer? To pray that wicked people will never be punished, will not be punished, but rather they are allowed to continue in their wickedness. Should we pray that devil worshipers continue to worship the devil and not be punished? That is a wicked prayer. And that's exactly what Christians in all these Sunday churches are praying, that they won't be punished for their devil worship. That's exactly what they're praying every Sunday in these churches. Don't bring the invasion. Don't bring the great tribulation. Let us be raptured out. Don't punish us. But take us to heaven even though we're devil worshipers. That's why they're praying. It's wicked. It is wicked prayers. Look at chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. Verse 36, 
chapter 32, verse 36. Now therefore thus saith ye, God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my wrath, my anger, in my wrath, and in my inundation, and I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So what that means is after 70 years of being in captivity to Babylon, he will finally bring an end to the captivity. He will turn it around, and he will bring them victory after those 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Well, that's already fulfilled thousands of years ago. That, if you look at that word, verse 38, that sentence in verse 38, that they should be my people and I will be their God, that refers directly to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 or chapter 22, where Jesus himself says in paradise, in the new heavens and new earth, that they will be my people and I will be their God. That's a quotation from the book of Revelation. So, even though God used those exact words from the book of Revelation, that was already fulfilled, fulfilled thousands and thousands of years before the book of Revelation was written. And it was fulfilled by bringing the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years of captivity. But yet it will be fulfilled again in our day and time, when Jesus comes back and delivers us from Babylon, from Assyria, when Babylon will fall. Dual prophecy. And yet fulfilled again in new heaven and new earth. Three times fulfilled. So are you getting the point that we can use Old Testament fulfilled prophecies to point to what's going to happen in our day and in our time. The same sins are occurring. Same sins are occurring. In fact, even the same, the same fallen angels manifested as presidents and kings over the earth. You've got the same demons, the same Lucifer, and the same God, and the same sins, and the same wrong holidays, and the same true holidays. And God is still dealing with the same people, the tribes of Israel, America, and the British Commonwealth, and the Jews. Same God, same devil, same citizens, same sins, same true holidays, same fake holidays. And so, wouldn't it also make sense for the same punishment? The same invasions? The invasion of Assyria again? 
Let's read chapter 12 of Revelation and try to sum it up here. Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. This is up in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So this is a consolation. The people in Old Testament times, and even to this day and time, are still looking up at the horoscopes and constellations and the sun and the moon and the stars and the comets and the eclipses for signs and seasons. So God is going to give a sign in the end times. And he did at the birth of Jesus, and at other times throughout history. Now, even though it's wrong to follow the horoscope, he still does give us some true signs up in the sky, knowing that we're looking up there. And so he gave a true sign up in the sky, a woman clothed the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars. In verse 2 it says, and she was with a child, it looked like in the consolation, or the symbolism and the fulfillment of what this meant was a woman with a child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, talking about the devil, having seven heads and ten horns, which is not only talking about the devil, but talking about the empires that he has ruled throughout time. Seven empires, counting the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and other Roman Empire and so forth throughout time. So it's the devil and his his kingdoms, the kingdoms of man. Seven heads and ten horns. The ten horns representing the final ten leaders of the earth in the end time Assyrian Empire that's still yet to be. And on his heads, or on his capital cities, seven crowns. And his tail drew away a third of the angels, the stars of heaven, and drew them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she gave birth, that he might devour her child. Now, if you allow the Bible to interpret itself, this sun and the moons and the stars and the birth We won't read it right now, but you can write it down to study it out later. I've referred to it many, many times before. It refers back to Genesis 37, Genesis 37, verse 9 and 10. You can write that down and study it after the broadcast, Genesis 37, verse 9 and 10. That makes it clear that's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel that we've been talking about this whole time talking about um, 
Joseph and, and uh, Jacob, Jacob and his wife and the 12 sons of Israel. These are the different stars and the sun and the moon. So this is talking about the birth of a child. This is talking about the birth of Emmanuel. And this is talking about, about the birth of nations and tribes and peoples, how the devil has always tried to destroy the descendants of Israel, how that Islam and communism, the kingdoms of the world, how the Iranians and the Persian and the Roman Empire, how all these governments have always waged war against the Israelites, the descendants of Esau and Ismael, uh, waging war against the descendants of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Manasseh, and even the United States and the Jews. But then, starting in verse 5, it travels in time and becomes a different fulfillment. We're going to look at three different fulfillments of the same prophecy. In chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, it is the fulfillment of the birth of uh, Isaiah's son, as well as the birth, maybe even four fulfillments. It was the birth of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, as well as the birth of Isaiah's son, as well as uh, uh, then coming up to verse 5. Verse 5 is the birth of Jesus as being of the tribe of Judah. So it changes time frames of when it's being fulfilled and how it's being fulfilled. But yet it's the same prophecy. And in verse 5, she gave birth, Mary gave birth to a son, Jesus, a male child, who is to rule, eventually, will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, not with kisses, but with a rod of iron. And her child was called up to God in his throne, his own throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. When Mary and Joseph learned about King Herod, they fled into Egypt for three and a half years. We still to this very day have historical record that Jesus and his parents and his family were in Egypt for three and a half years. So that is the wilderness that it's talking about in verse 6. It was a place prepared by God so that she, she Mary, would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Now, that was already fulfilled. But starting in verse 7, we have an end-time fulfillment, a third fulfillment in our day and in our time. And after we read it, it will become very clear to you that verse 7 is talking about our time. In verse 7, there was a war in heaven, or will be a war in heaven. Michael, the archangels, and his angels waging war with the dragon, Satan. And the dragon and his angels waging war, that would include Assad, waging war in heaven. Verse 8, and it was not, they were not strong enough, praise God, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the servant of old, which is called the devil and Satan, evil, who deceives the whole world. And his angels, including Assad, were thrown down with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, the saints, overcame him, the devil, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and because that they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you, the angels who dwell in them, and woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you and assault his angels, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So this ain't talking about thousands of years ago. It's talking about the last days. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, the church, the end-time church, the new covenant church, who gave birth to the male child. So in one sense, it's talking about Israel, and Mary that gave birth to the male child Jesus. But in a greater sense, it's talking about how Israel gave birth to the new covenant Jesus. So verse 13 is a great transitional verse. Don't be confused by it. It's a transitional verse that has more than one meaning, a dual meaning. It's meaning that the dragon will wage war against Israel and it is also meaning that the dragon will wage war against the church. But in verse 14 it starts talking only about the church, starting in verse 14. Because again, like I said, 13 is transitional. It's going from talking about Mary and Israel to starting to talk about the church. Verse 13 talks about both during the transition. Verse 14 talking only about the church. Verse 14, but two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman, the church, so that she would fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished. That doesn't necessarily have to talk about Egypt. Just like Egypt is also a foreshadowing of evil, it's a foreshadowing of evil, and we came out of evil, and we came out of Babylon, we came out of Egypt, but it's also a foreshadowing or a symbolism for a place of protection. And it doesn't have to be Egypt because it is used only as a symbol. But I want to draw your attention to the two wings of a great eagle. If you hold your finger there, save a bookmark there. Let's look over in, I think, uh, maybe Exodus. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 4. 
Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall see, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, and all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we know that verse 6 is quoted in the book of uh, what, Peter, where he says that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Peter quotes Exodus 19. But yet it was fulfilled when they came into Canaan. But yet verse 4 is talking about the exodus across the Red Sea. How that God bore them up on eagles' wings. That's only symbolism for being in his hand, under his wings, under his arms, under his protection. That's what that means, the symbolism. But yet that is fulfilled again. So when we read Exodus 19, verse 4, that's a dual prophecy. That's a prophecy of God protecting his people crossing the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt, as well as a prophecy of the end time, Revelation 12 now, going back to Revelation 12, verse 14, talking about God protecting some of his people, escaping the Assyrians. Because the truth is that Egypt and Assyria both were empires that were under the devil and the fallen angels. And so both of them are represented by the seven heads of the beast. They are the same empires in different time frames. And yet God will again protect some of his people. But just like in the first exodus, people had to physically travel. At that time, it was on foot and chariots, perhaps perhaps horses or camels or both. And in the end time, of airplanes, cars, bicycles, motorcycles, so forth. People will still have to travel in the exodus in the end times because the eagle's wings is just symbolism for God's protection. But in another sense, in a dual fulfillment, in a dual fashion, it is also symbolism for airplanes because just like the people had to travel in chariots, camels and horses and on foot, people today will travel in airplanes. So God was looking into the future when he said that in Exodus. He was thinking about how he's going to protect his people in our day and time when they were crossing the Red Sea. God was thinking about how he's going to protect us and how we're going to be traveling. So it's beautiful how God uses the symbolisms. So let's read again verse 14, Revelation 12, verse 14. 
but the two wings of a great eagle was given to the church so that she would fly into the place of safety, wilderness, to her place where she would be fed, taken care of, nourished for a time and times and a half a time. Isn't that the same language of Daniel 12? A time, times, and half a time. We looked at that last week, so you can just uh, not have to turn there. You can look at it after the broadcast if you want to, but that refers back to the same language that we talked about last week about the 1,335 days of the 12 and, and 60 days. Time, times, and half the time. Daniel 12. Let me make a note here. Okay, the end verse 15 says, And the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth for the woman, the church, that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. Well, isn't that what happened to the Egyptian army? That the Egyptian army was destroyed by a flood of water after Israel had crossed the Red Sea, the waters came back down over the Egyptian army. And so we see that might be not only symbolism, there may be an actual fulfillment again of a group of people crossing a body of water on dry ground and the waters coming back up to cover the armies who are trying to, to wage war against the church. That might, might happen again. In verse 16, but the earth helped the woman, the church, and the earth opened its mouth, which seems like a rupture in the earth in our day and time, and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. This might have something to do with the dams. We'll have to wait and see. In verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the church and went off to make war with the rest of the saints who are not going into the wilderness and who keep the commandments, who keep the Ten Commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you can see a lot of dual fulfillment. Let's look at one more verse. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 3. Talking about those last three and a half years. Chapter 11, verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's a time, time, half a time, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, perhaps literally, perhaps only symbolically. And these are the two olive trees, which is definitely only only a symbolism, 
And it is a symbolism of men filled with the Holy Ghost. They are the true olive trees and the true lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, which only means that they talk to God. That does not prove that they're angels. They are not angels because we see that their dead bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. So they've never been in heaven. They're not angels. They're not spirits. They're not Moses. They're not Elijah. They're not any Old Testament saints. They are men born in our day and in our time who will literally physically stand in Jerusalem, witness to the whole world the truth, keep the Ten Commandments, teach the Ten Commandments, and talk to God, even as Moses and Aaron talked to God, even as Elijah talked to God, even as Abraham and Noah talked to God. That's what it means that they stand before the Lord of the earth, is that they communicate and talk with God. In verse 5, it says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If you look at Jeremiah 5.14, which you can write that down, look at it later if you need to, Jeremiah 5.14 explains that this is only symbolism, that is the word of God coming out of their mouth. Just like uh, Jesus is going to destroy the Assyrian by the word of his mouth. Amen. By the word of his mouth. So shall the two witnesses destroy wicked people by the word of their mouth. All, we don't need guns and knives to protect ourselves. All you got to do is use the word of God. Use the scripture. Say, say something like, the Lord rebuke you. Or say something else. Use a scripture. Use a verse against the enemy. And it will stop them just like or better than a gun or a knife. God's people should not be dependent upon carnal warfare of guns and knives. And it says in verse 6, these men, these have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. That's what Elijah did. So it's, it's dual prophecy, being fulfilled more than once. That these have power to shut up the sky so that rain would not fall during the days they're prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood. That's what Moses did. So again, another fulfillment of the plagues of Egypt. And if we look at the seven last plagues of the wrath that's going to be poured out during the last 45 days, they are the same plagues of Egypt, the same plagues of Egypt are going to be poured out. Dual prophecy, more than one fulfillment. So we have many, many, many examples of how Old Testament prophecy that's already been fulfilled will be fulfilled again in our day and in our time. So now I hope you understand better and more fully that we can read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, 
and all the Old Testament prophecies and apply them for the Great Tribulation. When we read about war, invasion, cannibalism, and all the other horrible things that happened during the war, even how God told Jeremiah to tell the people to submit to the king of Babylon. Don't fight the invaders. That's where I get that from. God told Jeremiah, don't fight the invaders. Tell the people, don't resist the invasion. Don't harm the invaders. I tell people the same thing because it's the same invaders, the same God, the same fallen angels, the same sins, the same holy days, the same fake holy days, the same punishments, the same God who changes not. To fight the invaders is to fight the punishments. And we're not supposed to fight our Father when he punishes us, but to allow the punishment to come. And there's many, many other ways that we can apply the Scriptures. So I encourage people to read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel to understand what is going to occur. It's going to be almost exactly identical. So it would help us to read these Old Testament prophecies again. Thank you for listening today. And also remember that all of this points toward reconciliation to God. Again, God doesn't want any of this to happen, but it has to come because the people are out of control. So he has to discipline us to get us back to doing right again, to bring us back under control. And then he promises us victory, and he promises us that after the people repent, there will be peace, and he will pour out his love upon us. In fact, the punishment is an act of love, that he punishes the people because he loves us. That's what the Bible says. And so he loves us. He doesn't want to bring any harm to anyone. But the people have to be disciplined and brought under control. And all this points back to his love, and all this points back to the fact that he wants to bring us paradise. He wants to bring us paradise. He wants to bring us heaven on earth, and peace and joy and happiness and true love. And he's going to bring those things. After all the suffering is done and over with, he's going to restore the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to restore the treasures. He's going to restore the good things and the peace upon the land again. And so weeping may may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. There is a time that he is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth when we will have paradise. And there will no longer be any tears, no pain, no suffering, no death, no war, no lies, no wickedness, no suffering. That time is coming. And we need to put our eyes and our minds on the fact that God loves us and that everything that happens is for a reason to bring us to that day and that time 
when we will be in paradise with God, with Jesus Christ, in happiness and joy. Amen. Thank you for listening. And again, next week, we'll be having services two days in a row, 2 o'clock Eastern Time on both days, Saturday and Sunday, uh, for the Feast of Trumpets next week. I encourage you to have a good feast of trumpets. Have a feast, even though it's actually called festival, not feast. But nevertheless, it's good for you to have a special meal on Feast of Trumpets because we're going to be fasting on the Day of Atonement after that. But the Festival of Trumpets, have yourself a special meal. And have a good day and, and a, a treat and some fun and some relaxation, but also a little extra prayer and joining in, join us in for services, maybe hang some balloons and uh, enjoy yourself with the Feast of Trumpets. And remember that the Feast of Trumpets pictures the blowing of the seven trumpets and especially the last trumpet. The actual coming of Jesus Christ is what it's pictured. So we can celebrate that Jesus is coming. Amen. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may Jesus bless you in amazing ways. All of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.